This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Paglia in Stockholm, Sweden. Thanks for downloading this episode of Polar Geopolitics. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Polar Geopol. Here on episode 34, we'll get a realist perspective on Arctic geopolitics from Professor Caroline Kennedy Pipe, head of politics and international studies at Loughborough University. Professor Kennedy Pipe is an expert on Russia and a historian of the Cold War, something that the emerging great power competition in the Arctic is increasingly being compared to. Reflecting on the year 1983, towards the end but still at the height of the Cold War, Caroline starts by taking a longer view on the geopolitical development and importance of the Arctic over the past 40 years. As you know, in my work, I'm very keen that we don't start our studying of the Arctic in the late 1990s and this idea that with the foundation of the Arctic Council, incredibly important though that was, that we should just simply think of the Arctic as a place of harmony and cooperation, and somewhere really as a place apart from global politics. And that has dominated a lot of the scholarly literature because we've seen the Arctic Council, uh, the undoubted cooperation between friends and indeed foes in things like the Coast Guard Forum as almost really an example of how Cold War politics can be transcended. Now, much of that of course, depended on our view that Russia could be put to one side throughout the 1990s. We're very aware of the economic doldrums, the political uh, lethargy that really characterized the Yeltsin years. And it allowed NATO, of course, to expand eastwards, uh, to take up the strategic buffer in Eastern Central Europe and push Russia back. And in that sense, the comparisons with the Cold War and my year of 1983, it's really about saying that that was an interregnum, that this idea of harmonious cooperation, although, as I said, true in part, is only part of the story, and that really to understand Russia and its great power status in the Arctic, it is the preeminent Arctic player. We need to dig deeper into historical roots and think of the landscape that we inhabited when Russia was a greater power when the Soviet Union still existed. And look at the geopolitical interests which both Russia and indeed NATO had in the Arctic. And the thing I would say, Eric, is even though we know the Arctic is melting, that political conditions will be transformed by climate change, some realities remain the same. And this is why some of us Perhaps it's a lazy approach, are beguiled by the idea that Russia and America, both nuclear powers, still are closer to each other in the Arctic geographically than any other place on the globe. And this is still a place, as it was in the 1980s, of nuclear and possible, let us hope not, nuclear confrontation. So the United States, and this is very interesting under the new President Biden, have signaled a renewed interest in the Arctic precisely because they're keenly aware arms control, nuclear weapons, with the reinvigoration 
of Russian foreign policy, whether we like it or not, from Georgia through Crimea into the Arctic, Russia is a considerable player in the Arctic. In a way, it wasn't in the 1990s. That's why I think we return to that Cold War framework and try and extrapolate from that extremely heady and dangerous time some lessons um, that we might be able to apply in the changing landscape of the Arctic. That's a fascinating perspective. I mean, would you consider this more of a realist uh, view on the Arctic at this point? I mean, I know that a lot of scholars and others um, like to think of the Arctic as uh, as sort of a, a bastion of liberal internationalism because of the Arctic Council. And no, uh, some of them actually uh, nominated the Arctic Council for a Nobel Peace Prize. Do you think that you have a, a very different perspective in that case uh, on how the geopolitics of the Arctic functions? Um, I think many of us with hearts of darkness believe that realism, in its original sense, perhaps not in the way that the textbooks now describe it for undergraduates, that realism, that is the sense of balancing, of interest, of power, but above all else, careful diplomacy should perhaps guide us. And here we come back to really the question of sovereignty. And you and I have discussed this before. Part of what drove the Westphalian system um, was this idea of sovereign rights and the sovereignty of the powers within their own territorial boundaries. I think what's happened since the 1990s, particularly, uh, as you would say, with that drive to a liberal framework and understanding of humanitarian intervention, of the dominance, if you like, of liberal values, that that has run headlong in the Arctic, into this renewed Russian assertiveness and a very different conception of what sovereignty means in the modern world. Um, I was very struck reading again the other day uh, the memoirs of our Prime Minister, uh, Tony Blair. In it, he has um, a very nice vignette in which he talks about his meeting with Vladimir Putin. And uh, Mr. Blair, of course, um, hot off the Northern Irish peace process and peace agreement, uh, thankfully after 30 years of conflict, and with his major role in persuading Bill Clinton to deal with Serbia and protect the Kosovo Albanians. Uh, Mr. Blair um, actually remarked in his memoirs that part of what he found fascinating and frustrating about Vladimir Putin was that while he, Blair, upheld a moral framework of sovereignty and the use of military power to pursue moral interests, Putin, he argues, had a much more, um, you would call it realism, but really a state-based idea of rights and duties. And so for me, I think the Arctic encapsulates that problem, that we've moved into a very transactional notion of sovereignty, which we pick up and take down depending on the political complexion of our enemies or our opponents. Whereas I think the Russians have a more deeply ingrained sense of historical and cultural politics in terms of their view of sovereign rights. Now, I'm not naive. Um, we know that sovereign rights can be used to promote a Russian agenda, the protection of Russian-speaking people, Ukraine, Crimea, Estonia, Finland. Uh, take your choice. But nevertheless, what it points to is a key moment in international relations where the Russians no longer 
as they were in the 1990s, are feeble or willing to simply accept that dominance of Western dear sovereignty. Now, if we have uh, two contrasting visions of sovereignty between the Russians and the West, the the third player that is often part of this this new conception of a great power um, competition in the Arctic is, of course, China. Do you think China has a third view on sovereignty, or do they do they align more with the Russian view, or I would guess not the Western view? So China is exactly a new player in the Arctic. But can I take you back to my own particular take on the Cold War? I always disputed the idea that the Cold War was simply bipolar because right from the emergence of Mao's China, but more specifically in the 1960s and 1970s, China was the third pillar in international relations. We just didn't accept it or we didn't see it clearly enough. And China, of course, throughout the 1960s and 70s, began to conform to what William Fox deemed superpower, super hyphen power status in his original conception. Because from the 1960s and 70s, China began to develop more reach, more mobility, and more power projection. Uh, let's note that Fox, of course, thought <laughs> that Britain would be a super hyphen power, and he was, of course, quite wrong in that conception, and we can come back to that. But the point is, during the Cold War, China was a player, not in the Arctic, but certainly in the so-called developing world throughout Africa. So the simple conception that it was U.S.-Russia, I would unpick. While it's accepting that in certain forms, arms control would be a key one, the Russians and the Americans faced each other. Now, China is a new actor in the Arctic and has been hugely successful in a different type of sovereignty, and I would call this economic sovereignty. Uh, we know about Belt and Road, and China has been adept at using soft power, economic power, really to begin to subvert or help or aid some of the Arctic states. Um, Chinese aid, inverted commas, when the EU faltered in terms of the banking crisis in Iceland is but one example. Its attempt to infiltrate, penetrate, work with Greenland Again, a key worry for all Western states because, of course, there is a momentum for Greenland to tear itself away from the Kingdom of Denmark. There's a whole post-colonial history here, which the Danes are scrabbling to undo. But remember that if Greenland succeeds, perhaps with the help of Chinese money, Denmark is no longer an Arctic state. So the map potentially could change. And China... Um, we know it's a very uneasy alliance with Russia, premised on pragmatic concerns post the imposition of sanctions on Russia. Nevertheless, China lurks, uh, that's the phrase I would use, and is extremely skillful at positioning itself as not, of course, an Arctic state, it cannot make that claim, but a near-Arctic state. And, of course, um, not just China, I think one of the players which will become far more important in the coming 20 years is India. And here, can I just throw into the mix another notion, underdeveloped but important, of scientific sovereignty. In order to be a serious Arctic player and to be taken seriously, you have to have scientific credentials. China, India and Turkey 
are now beginning to play that game in a way that we British have done very successfully, I would argue, for a number of years. Turkey. I, thought, uh, I think it's the first time Turkey is mentioned on this podcast, but very interesting. I certainly want to follow up uh, more on that, on some of these, these newer Arctic players. Turkey and uh, Estonia now, uh, Ireland applying for observer status to the Arctic Council. I think we're going to take that a little bit later, Carolyn, and uh, and really drill down on that because I think it's a fascinating aspect. But uh, if we can maybe perhaps um, return to this, this these lenses that uh, you've applied to the Arctic, and I think sovereignty is certainly a very interesting one. Others that, uh, that I heard you talk about before were um, the idea of leverage and ideology. Perhaps you can explain how those enter into your, your geopolitical analysis of the Arctic. Yeah, so it's very unfashionable now um, to talk about ideologies. I think post 9-11, we've really become more adept in the academy at discussing religious sentiment or other types of mentalities. But if we return uh, to ideology, there's absolutely no doubt that uh, Western states and in contrast to Russia, you know, has an ideological framework which drives its notions of democratic rights of the people, uh, whatever, however we might um, describe the people, and the freedoms, navigation of the seas, and economic rights. And throw into that, of course, not just states that operate in the Arctic, it's big private companies and other economic stakeholders. The point, I think, here is that Russian ideology is premised on a different conception of the state, of states' rights. And what I think we see the Russians doing in the Arctic is using a lens through which they can promote a different type of understanding. And in doing so, particularly with Britain leaving the EU, the Russians sense that there is some disarray between Britain and the EU in terms of the conception of the Arctic. And I think in particular, the Russians have always thought to use leverage diplomatically to try and prize members of the Western alliance apart. Now, they have quite often failed. But nevertheless, the reading of the post-Brexit scenario is that there might be um, an opportunity to sow mischief, certainly to take advantage of what appears to be a shrinkage of EU cohesion. And Britain leaving the EU, Brexit, has been a profound shock, I think, for many in Western Europe. Most people didn't think that Britain would vote to leave the EU. And I think the Russians have seen that as rather an encouraging sign politically that all is not well in the European House. Nevertheless, that has to be counterbalanced against the very serious reality of the fact that with the Salisbury poisoning, with NATO really engaging in an uptick in military activity in the Arctic, and with the British, with us stressing the importance of reinforcing the UK-Iceland-Greenland gap and our very well-pronounced fears about Russian incursions into the Eastern Atlantic. There's a mixed bag. And so politically, the Russians see some disarray. Militarily, they see acts of cohesion and coherence between Britain, its northern allies in particular in NATO, 
which I think gives them pause for thought. But there is absolutely no doubt that diplomatically, the Russians think there is some leverage to be had. I would also say that the lack of cohesion over Ukraine, Crimea and Syria has also, I think, given the Russians quite a lot of manoeuvre and flexibility in the way they operate. And Putin's taken advantage of that. You mentioned earlier the um, financial crisis in 2008 and how uh, China perhaps used that uh, as, a, as a moment to, to exert some leverage uh, through um, financial uh, support for Iceland and, and others. Uh, do you see China also using the, the current disarray that you, that you mentioned around Brexit, around um, some sort of uh, Western self-doubt in, in, in our institutions, particularly in the wake of uh, COVID-19, as another opportunity perhaps that could be exploited by China and perhaps also by Russia? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's absolutely right. So the financial crisis of 2008, the hesitancy on the part of the EU, and really the way in which Iceland had to turn and did turn to China means that if you look at the Chinese foothold, and it's no more than that in Iceland, but the, the influence far outweighs that. Um, in Reykjavik, the new, uh, new building, you know, the scientific station, all of that means that a small member of NATO, a founding member of NATO, even though the people of Iceland are inclined, of course, to anti-militarism, means that the country although robustly democratic, has been penetrated. There's absolutely no doubt about that, and is subject to Chinese influence. China, of course, it's interesting, is now public enemy number one. Uh, we note the debate in the Trump White House, Russia versus China. Biden, in his initial calls with Putin, appears to be more robust with Russia than Trump was. But China, of course, is playing a much longer game. Um, it has a strategic view, as it did in Central Asia, about the opportunities that the opening up of the Arctic will yield. Now, of course, China will be dependent on Russian control of the Northern Sea Route for now. But nevertheless, as I said, Iceland, Greenland, particularly vulnerable to Chinese influence. Coming back to COVID-19, Thucydides always said that, you know, states in disarray, may be subject to plague, and, and how true that is. And so this plague, which literally um, has demonstrated some visible weaknesses in my own country and across the Western capitalist world, also has allowed Russia, remember those early days, the denial that it was COVID-19 in Russia, the Russian uh, attempts to help Italy in its darkest days. Of course, any sign of um, disturbance or turmoil in a Western state, gives uh, enemies, opponents, rivals the ability um, to control a, a social narrative, a global narrative, but also to see where the fault lines in the society might lie. So absolutely, China is taking advantage. And who owns the meta-narrative, I think, in global terms is, is absolutely crucial. Electoral interference, work in the so-called grey zone, hybrid warfare, we've moved from the realm of direct military confrontation or standoff as in the Cold War to another sphere. You know, what Primo Levi would argue is this threshold, this space below war where we're not sure who our enemies are or what we're dealing with. So cyber, hybrid, interference in the democratic process in places like Finland, 
Denmark, my own country, the United States, absolutely hallmarks of Russian and Chinese behavior. We've moved into a whole different terrain. Do you see any ways to, to counter these threats and challenges, either specifically towards Russia or to China or to them together? Is there anything that these Western um, nations, whether it's uh, through the Arctic Council, although, of course, Russia is a member of that, and uh, NATO and other groupings, do you see any ways to push back against what you're articulating as, as a series or a set of threats? I think that it's very difficult for Western policymakers post-Crimea, um, and it's very difficult for UK policymakers post-Salisbury to think about cooperation uh, with Russia. But I think one of the lessons of the 1990s, and we have to be careful what we wish for and the shadows or blowback from our own actions, there is absolutely no doubt that the movement east of NATO has antagonized Russia and led to claims of false promises. So how, and this is a trick, and I'm a scholar, not a diplomat, how do we deal with uh, opponents, people who've crossed several lines in terms of actions in Crimea? And how do we reassure our allies, let's think of in Estonia, that if we go and negotiate or talk to the Russians, which I think we have to, and we do already in any number of forms, how do we reassure the alliance that those conversations, that dialogue, is one that is also in their interest? And I, I would say with Russia, the thing we've learned from the 1990s is keeping Russia out of the European house hasn't led to any tangible benefits in terms of a greater um, zone of peace and harmony. And this is where you're right, the Arctic Council is a forum. Of course, Arctic Council cannot discuss hard security issues. But in the working groups, and particularly, I would argue, through scientific cooperation, there are many opportunities to engage with the Russians. Coast Guard Forum, as I said, Law of the Sea, international arbitration, all take place in the Arctic. So, and I think you'll probably need someone cleverer than me. What are these particular forums that we can build upon to start talking again very constructively to Russia. My point would be isolating Russia didn't help anyone in the 1990s. A couple of issues you've alluded to here, Carolyn, is um, that uh, it'll be interesting to hear your thoughts on uh, how um, valid they are, because they're, they're, I think there are issues that cause quite a bit of consternation amongst um, uh, analysts, is the, um, you mentioned the uptick in military activity in the Arctic, particularly from Russia, and also the uh, the Russia-China strategic partnership. How do you view those two things as um, sort of foundations for the great power competition that uh, that people talk about in the Arctic these days? So I think the uptick in military activity in the Arctic is extremely interesting. So we've been very preoccupied with uh, remilitarization or militarization of the Arctic, um, the reinvigoration of military bases in the high north, and what appeared to be the attempt by Russia to repopulate its northern bases. A sympathetic view would be simply after the 1990s that this is a necessary catch-up. There wasn't the money or the inclination in the 1990s to really look after the assets which had fallen into you know, a grave state of disrepair. So benign analysis would say this is merely getting back to where the Russians you know, had been 
A darker view would be this is remilitarization, it speaks to intent, and that it's Russia posed to really dominate the Eastern Atlantic, make mischief with uh, lines of communication, and really unsettle our Western powers like the United Kingdom by playing cat and mouse in the waters around the United Kingdom and up to Iceland. I'd say it's, it's a mix. And I think one of the interesting things about the Arctic is it's become, realists like me don't normally use this type of phrase, it's become performative. So a lot of what NATO has done, if we look at its vast military exercises, if we look, you know, the deployment of 50,000 service personnel in 2018, it's about signaling and it's also about the reassurance of allies. And that's very important because militaries do symbolize intent and do reassure allies. You know, that's why there's a forward presence in Estonia. This is about signaling to Russia that there are lines that will not be crossed in the Arctic with our allies. So the interesting question is how to manage that uptick in military exercises on all sides. You know, what confidence building measures are there? What can be enhanced in terms of warning, signaling, and the dialogue with the other side? As both, you know, begin to use the melting Arctic, really to a far greater degree. But that brings us back to my Cold War analogy. The Arctic is extremely important at the top of the world for signaling, you know, it seems to me, alliance intent. Can't be done in the South, of course, because of the treaty. So the North, I think, is a really interesting place at the moment because it's performative, it's about deterrence, but it's also, I think, about signaling to our allies that NATO is still alive and well and kicking in the Arctic, or what I've termed the broader North. Well, the idea of performative, I think, is very interesting. And I mean, the way the way I, I mean, a lot of scholars interpret the 1987 uh, Gorbachev speech as um, as being a performance, uh, signaling uh, perhaps uh, a winding down of the Cold War. And, and, and I see also this this uh, Mike Pompeo speech from uh, 2019 at the Arctic Council in, uh, in Finland as perhaps also being quite performative, in not just for the Arctic, but for geopolitics in general, as sort of signaling the this great power competition that, that should be brought out into the open that maybe was was there for a long time, but that in the, in the view of the Trump administration perhaps should be a little more clearly addressed. I mean, do you see that as perhaps as bookends to an era, this interregnum that you mentioned earlier, the 1987 Gorbachev speech and the and 2019 Mike Pompeo speech? That's a really interesting um, idea, Eric. Uh, I'm very clever. Thank you. I mean, obviously, as historians, we pick and choose our years, our decades, and our interregnum. And I suppose what I, I would say with Gorbachev's speech is it was a moment in time where, fairly obviously for those of us privileged to be in and around, you know, the INF agreement, uh, the tragedies of Chernobyl, Armenian earthquake, all of this wrapped up in this idea that we did all share a planet that environmental issues were important, arms control, uh, conventional forces agreement. It did set the tone for what came next. But I think the problem in all of that is that Russia wasn't an equal partner. And of course, once Gorbachev had been 
you know, no longer leader. I think the issue is Russia now sees itself as co-equal to the United States and has struggled to get back to its status after 2008. So I would say the Murmansk speech um, is the beginning, really, of the phase that runs up to 2008. And then the reassertion by Putin, I think, with the Georgia incursion, is what starts the next phase of uh, a reassertive Russia, a renewed Russia, a more confident Russia in terms of economic and resource energy. So Gorbachev, yes, right up to 2008, but then I think the return of Russia, particularly in Arctic politics, but also we have to say in Syria, into the Middle East, a, a region it had been not very successful in, during the Cold War, and a challenge, actually, to Obama and Trump's America. So I'd divide it slightly differently and say the interesting thing with the Biden presidency is what that will mean for the relations with Russia. And one final question, Carolyn. Um, and I know that you're an expert on um, on hybrid warfare, and I'm not trying to say that there is a, a sort of warfare taking place in the Arctic right now, but is that a lens also that could be used to, to look at what's transpiring beneath the surface or perhaps in the longer term in the Arctic, this notion of hybrid warfare? Yeah, and it will take very many forms. And again, thank you, um, Eric, for that insight, because one of the interesting set of developments in the Arctic is, of course, the indigenous people of the Arctic, the Inuit who span, you know, Canada and across through into Russia, have been obviously prized by the Arctic Council. You know, the territories, the regions, the landscapes of the Arctic belong as much to the indigenous people as to anybody else. And and here's the interesting thing. Russia, China, Western states are all engaged in a a competition, if you like, for who can best preserve the interests of the Arctic people. China, for example, has made great virtue of um, reindeer herding competitions. Russia speaks all the time about the plight of some of the indigenous people in the Canadian Arctic in itself, something the Canadians are, are seeking to remedy. But nevertheless, the plight of certain gendered groups certain ethnic groups in the Arctic has become a site of contestation. On top of that, of course, is the key argument about how the Arctic and its riches should and can be exploited. And we like to think of the Arctic as a pristine place, a place apart. But of course, for development to take place, the Arctic people will need access to some of their own resources. So there's a development issue. There's also a gender issue. Women are leaving the Arctic. Very talented women are leaving the Arctic. We're seeing a hollowing out of rural communities and a push towards urbanization. Social media is incredibly important in terms of mitigating vast, vast distances. High suicide rates plague the young populations of the Arctic. All of this gives great powers. Many arenas in which to parade their goods and their influence. So the Arctic is not just hard military security, worrying though that might be. There are a range of soft security issues. 
terrorism we've yet to see, even though uh, Mr. Putin famously characterized the Greenpeace endeavor as terrorism, yet we need to make its mark in the Arctic. But there are a series of profound challenges in terms of uh, the population which is shrinking in the Arctic, and most notably, of course, in the Russian Arctic, a serious demographic crisis, which has to mitigate any notion of an all-powerful, all-cohesive Russian presence, severe social problems in the Russian Arctic, a depopulation, a gender imbalance, which is actually causing many problems. We, you know, I think Russian men, highest suicide rate, or one of them in the world. So when we think of Russia, let's think of a Russia that is subject as indeed many states are, and you, you mentioned COVID-19, to social turmoil. So the Arctic is not a harmonious place once we lift the lid off of the lived experiences of the people of the Arctic. I, I don't think we should forget that. Certainly a complex region, a crucial region, a fascinating region. Professor Carolyn Kennedy-Pipe, thank you very much for joining us here on the Blue Geopolitics Podcast. Thank you, Eric.